This is Jagdish Chef, co-author of the four A's of marketing, creating value for customers, company, and society. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Professor Jagdish Sheth to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Rajenda Sisodia, The Four A's of Marketing, Creating Value for Customer, Company, and Society, published by Rutledge. Jagdish Sheth is the Charles H. Kelstadt Professor of Marketing at Emory University in Atlanta. He has been an educator, thought leader, and advisor to governments and industries for more than 40 years. He has published more than 30 books and over 200 academic papers, in all in top marketing journals. His book, The Theory of Buyer Behavior with John A. Howard, published in 1969, is a classic in marketing. And interesting fact, in 1938, Dr. Sheth was born in Burma, where his father had migrated from India to set up a business as a rice merchant. And in 1941, the family fled back to India in wake of the Japanese invasion of Burma. Dr. Sheth, congratulations on the forays of marketing and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. So, Dr. Sheth, you're, you're in Atlanta, uh, and I guess that um, would help us to ex- understand uh, your southern accent. <laughs> yes, I do have a southern accent. People find it very surprising. Because of that, I started by telling everybody, call me Jag as in Jaguar. Uh-huh. And ever since that association, I've been dreaming of owning a Jaguar with a license plate, Jags Jag. Uh And the dream became a reality 20 years ago when I turned 60. I'm going to turn 80 this year, in this month, actually. And my kids surprised me on my birthday. 60 is a major event in the life of an Asian life, primarily. And, uh, you know, they surprised me. I don't count my birthdays. I come from that old country, being a refugee from Burma, and I went out to get my local newspaper called Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and lo and behold, I saw this beautiful Jaguar, top of the line, 
even the color I like, parked in the driveway with a handwritten license plate, Jag Jag, happy 60th birthday. Wow. And that was from your your children? Yeah, from my two children who are both married, and they also live in Atlanta. But it turned out to be a rental car, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm still looking for my Jaguar. Okay, well, if anyone from uh, you know Jaguar United States is uh, listening, uh, I think that would be a great uh, product endorsement if you want to uh, give Dr. Sheth uh, a Jaguar. And uh, I don't think my children listen to uh, this podcast, but if they want to get me a Jaguar, you know, just an idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Actually, actually, Douglas, it's very interesting that Jaguar is now owned by Tata Motors, which is an Indian multinational, and Mr. Ratan Tata himself is very fond of automobiles. You know, he tried to create this nano car, which eventually failed. But Jaguar Land Rover brands are owned by them, and they're doing very well with the brand. So I think I can provide a better return on marketing dollars. If I was given a Jaguar, I can drive around and talk about Jaguars in Jaguar. I think so. I think uh, you've already got the name. You've already branded yourself. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we should do that. And you actually talked about uh, the nano car in, in, in your book. Um, yes. And, you know, I want to thank uh, one of the Marketing Book Podcast listeners, Greg Thomas, who uh, is in Atlanta. He, I think he might have been a student of yours uh, at Emory. And uh, he, he put us in touch. And uh, so, you know, this isn't the first time that one of the listeners has helped to bring a, a guest onto the Marketing Book Podcast. So I, I really appreciate that. And what happened was uh, Greg Thomas uh, heard me uh, listen to my 100th episode where I was interviewing, uh, I think it was the 100th episode, where I was interviewing Dr. Philip Kotler, the father, father of modern marketing. And we were talking about the four Ps of marketing, and then he talked about the four A's uh, that you and uh, Professor Sisodia, the, your, your book and your right. the concept that, that you've ad- advanced. And then I should also add that this book, The Four A's of Marketing, is dedicated to Philip Kotler. Yes, yes. And, and you wrote a very nice foreword through the book. Yeah. So... I should say that uh, before we get into this, this book is is one of those um, books that occasionally I've read for the Marketing Book Podcast that, for lack of a better term, it's it's sort of rewired my marketing brain. In other words, it's it's sort of like getting a, a software upgrade where it, it helped to uh, further shape, uh, I guess, and give me a deeper understanding of what works better in, uh, in marketing. And we're going to talk about the four Ps for people who aren't familiar with that. Um, and uh, then go into the four A's as well. But I'd like to start with uh, an excerpt on page three. It says, in this book, we present a powerful and tested approach that helps managers see a business's every action through the eyes of its customers. This approach is organized around the values that matter most to customers, acceptability, affordability, accessibility, and awareness. Taken together, these attributes are called the four A's. So, Dr. Sheth, tell us the story of how this concept and this book uh, came to be and why you and Professor Sosodia wrote it. Yes. Um, you know, we all study four P's of marketing, product, place, promotion, and, um, uh, you know... Uh, place? I forget the place, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, the, the, the issue is that most of them are more features of what a company offers to the audience or the customer. But from a customer viewpoint, one has to think of benefits rather than features of the company's offering. 
So we started thinking about what benefits customer is seeking. I've always been in the customer centricity area from my book, The Theory of Buyer Behavior, which began as a journey in 1962. We finished it in 1969, became a classical seminal piece, taking a customer perspective, understanding psychology of customers at that time. And that began to stay with me over 50 years now. And then this framework came accidentally in some ways, because here in Atlanta, as you know, this is a Coca-Cola country. And at Coca-Cola, I learned from one of the senior executives that they were practicing what they call four A's, um, three A's of marketing, which turned out to be affordability, accessibility, and um, uh, awareness, apparently. And so so we, we added the fourth A. It was, and this was acceptability, affordability, and accessibility. And uh, I learned that thing, and I found fascinating Coca-Cola mentioned that all functions in their corporation, janitorial functions, to the CFO functions, to operations, to logistics, ultimately had to show how company delivers these three A's of marketing. So the framework actually was three A's of marketing. And then I began to associate that with another framework I have created. Every market has three customers, not one customer. A customer is a buyer, which is what we have always studied, and that's where selling is involved. It's a buyer-seller aspect, but a customer is a user also, and a customer is a payer also. In a business-to-business market, it's very obvious because the procurement department is different than accounts payable department, which is different than engineers who specify what they want to have from a product feature viewpoint. But in consumer markets, which is where marketing has come, we never separated the uh, three of them. But it's very obvious in a household. For example, a child is a user, but not a payer or a buyer. So I have a whole textbook in that area Uh, basically talking about what are the situations where you are a user but not a buyer and a payer. You are a buyer but not a user and all the combinations, which are eight combinations. And so I began to latch on to this framework and I said it matches with my knowledge or my understanding of customers. And then we added the fourth A, okay, Mm -hmm. which is the awareness. Right. And so before we get further... uh, back into the four P's and then the four A's, let's take a step back because at the beginning of the book, uh, you could not have been clearer that uh, marketing and marketers need a makeover. Right. And you talk about how CEOs and boards are increasingly skeptical of marketing's ability to deliver reasonable returns and how uh, marketing is... uh, often one of the most uh, has the most failures and um, marketing's done a poor job of helping companies become more oriented around their customers instead of them themselves. What, what, why, why else does, does marketing need a makeover and, and where do you see that going? It's probably at least two reasons and maybe three separate reasons. The first reason is that most of the marketing knowledge came only from one industry, which is consumer packaged goods industry with the notion of starting with branding. As you know, it all began in England, actually, with one of the soap companies, then became a mainstream practice. And all the textbooks in marketing are primarily talking about what uh, this framework is all about branding aspects, right? Mm -hmm. So it's basically CPG knowledge. 
which means that all of the uh, ideas that are there in the services industry may not map with product industries. And also markets are more than consumer markets. You have the consumer durable markets like appliances people, where one of the key strategies often is creating a used market, for example. Most of the appliances like automobiles, for example, even refrigerators have a reuse market of some sort, which in a consumer packaged goods, there's no theory like that for, for that, for example. So services industries are very different. We have a whole new discipline. Durable products are different. So I began to question whether marketing as we know today is relevant, especially when the largest market cap, market cap companies are now all Silicon Valley companies. Mm -hmm. And I think I've seen, uh, there was some, some research I've seen that talks about how uh, publicly traded companies, the board members, very few, a very small percentage have any kind of uh, marketing background, which probably... Absolutely doesn't help. Yeah, you're so right. Very few have them marketing background as board members, but more importantly, at the board meeting, the chief marketing officer is not there. In many companies, the chief sales officer is there, but not the marketing officer, mm -hmm. which well, is very fascinating. So in the management team, uh, the only exception, Douglas, is the following. Only country where I have seen chief marketing officers becoming the CEO and the chairman of a company is in India, not in America. Hmm. Why do you think that is? In India, because most of them start as engineers, as we used to have. Immediately, they will get their MBA rather than work. Then they start primarily in the sales function. And all of a sudden, they're set out in the field understanding immediate customers, which may be retailers, for example, or the end consumers, depending on business-to-business -business market, as opposed to consumer markets, you know, whether you have a channel partner or not. And then they were immediately put into the role where they rise because they were rotated across all the functions. Hmm. Whereas in the U.S., we keep them in the same silo for a long career. And that's hmm. really the problem. And so my view is that, unfortunately, Marketing tends to be here, not as critical as it should be. In fact, uh, my one of the favorite authors I've read very well, and I know Philip Kotler's same favorite author is Peter Drucker. Mm, yes. And Peter Drucker had more insights on marketing than any marketing professor that I can think of. And he came out with two very key points. One was the purpose of business is to create and retain customers not making money, which is very fascinating. I mean, this is written 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago. Very prescient. And, yeah, and the other thing he did was very fascinating. He said there are only really two value-creating functions in a company, innovation and marketing. Hmm. Everything else is cost centers. They are not as useful at all to our value creation. And in many countries, innovation is always admired and respected. There are national incentives programs Nobody says, how can we be better marketers? It's very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Nations don't invest in marketing. So just to add to, uh, just to pour a little more salt in the wound, though, to get the attention <laughs> yes. of the listeners, um, <laughs> yes. you, you talk about how too many marketers, and I've seen this myself, and there's yes. been other books written about this, such as uh, Barta and uh, Barwise's book, uh, 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader, too, you say too many marketers are preoccupied with relative trivialities, <laughs> such as sense-off coupons, media impressions, and creative executions. 
And also, on page 12, you talk about a key problem is that most marketing managers are not financially literate and right. therefore have difficulty demonstrating return on marketing investments. And there was also a study by the Fournays Group in London, I believe, where they talked about how something like 80% of CEOs just didn't trust that marketers understood where the revenue comes from. So if we've got everyone's attention here, I now want to go back because there's this book can help those marketers uh, help their organizations understand uh, marketing better and succeed. So let's go back to the four Ps briefly, just for folks who are not familiar with that. I believe that was uh, originated by one of the professors at uh, Harvard Business School in the 1960s. And they talked about the four Ps as being your product, your price, your pricing strategy, your place, meaning how you distribute it, is it retail, online, that type of thing. And then finally, the fourth P is uh, promotion, which sadly is what too many people think of as marketing is just that promotion part. And the four Ps uh, are, if you think about it, very much at risk of being too internally focused because you, <laughs> you didn't hear me talking too much about customers in those four Ps, did you? Nope. No, you're so right. Exactly. Not only that, but because of the separation of the sales function, even in CPG, consumer packaged goods industry, there'll be the people responsible for managing the trade relationships, the channels, the wholesalers, the retailers, if you're a manufacturer, for example. And in a B2B market, industrial markets, clearly you have a separate sales function with an account manager, a territory manager, a vice president of sales, and ultimately global sales. It's very clear demarcation. So marketing got delegated, unfortunately, primarily as advertising and promotion, mm -hmm. which is where it should not be. And I think it got maligned in the process that it primarily does marketing communication function as opposed to truly four Ps of marketing. I do want to mention one thing, Douglas, four Ps framework came from Procter & Gamble, actually. Oh, that's right. You know, you'd and, think if I read the book, I would have remembered that. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there was a professor at University of Minnesota, Richard Lewis was his name. He is the one who was an advisor. He came to know the frame. He taught that in his doctoral seminar. And one of the students in his doctoral seminar was McCarthy. And he is the one who brought the four Ps of marketing framework in his textbook, okay? Oh, okay. He was the one at, at Harvard. He's the one, right. Okay. Yeah, in, the, in the late, no, he was at Michigan State eventually. But he wrote the book in the late 50s before Cartler's book became the de facto Bible of marketing management. Uh, this one was probably the best book written, and Eugene McCarthy really did a fantastic job of expanding that book to even junior colleges. And 4Ps is a useful framework. I must tell you, as a manager from a budget allocation viewpoint, it creates tensions as to how much will you spend in advertising versus sales promotion, for example, very clearly. Right. How much would you spend? How much would you spend, for example, in channel partnering? You know, let's say in promotion alone, should you have uh, incentives given to the retailer, for example, or the end consumer? I, I think the framework has a significant value, except that it does not take the customer perspective. Exactly. And I think that even if companies just use the four Ps, many of them would be better off. Because uh, whenever I've yeah. explained that to companies, they then start to take a more holistic view. But the four yeah, right. A's, which we're now we're going to talk about, it's like going to the eye doctor and they put a different <laughs> lens up there for you, maybe an improved one. 
Right. And uh, suddenly it's, it's, it's much clearer. But what it does is it's like you're putting on customer goggles and it's yes. forcing you to see all the decisions that the company makes in terms of growing yeah. revenue and profitability and so forth through the customer's viewpoint. And from everything I've read, uh, including in the book, the companies that are able to put on those customer goggles are more successful. No question. It's undoubted. And, you know, this book is written after 15 years of doing case studies after case studies. We gather 550 cases of product failures, equally important products that succeeded by accident. <laughs> In other words, they would have died if you went to follow the plan. And some of these are excellent examples. Mustang car is one of them. If it had, they had succeeded according to the plan, if they had gone according to the plan, they would have been a miserable failure. But some other customer in the market discovered the car. The car was targeted primarily for young adults, 16 to 21 age, wanting a car of his own, not a used station wagon from parents, for example. They designed the car right, looking like a sports car. 18 months, they gave the cars to college coeds and flight attendants to create buzz and the publicity. Excellent, excellent way they did, except they forgot one little detail, namely that in that market, 93% only bought used cars. Only 7% bought a new car. So when you analyze the results, the market would have never been big enough, in fact, to justify a run rate of about 200,000 units per year for three-year calculation. Instead, it turns out that it's not the teenage son or the daughter, primarily the son, but it's the father who was a baby boomer, wanted his own car, and it went into a different direction. It's fascinating story. Well, thank goodness the, for midlife crises. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was a midlife crisis. He didn't want anybody to touch that car and became an icon, you know? I mean, there are stories after stories we have discovered about why products succeed by accident or products succeed despite management plans or business plans, unless you take this customer perspective. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the first one, which is acceptability. Right. And please tell us what, what is meant by acceptability and why is that one the first A? Yeah, and there is, you know, in some sense, we think about starting with the product, and because of that, we put the acceptability. Although in many ways, from a marketing communication point of view, it should be awareness, right? So we do the opposite in this case, that's fine. What we found was fascinating. Acceptability, like each of the four A's, has two dimensions. You have the functional acceptability and a psychological acceptability. Marketing always has overemphasized psychological acceptability. All the programs we do, including the advertisements we do, uh, packaging we do, the positioning we do, for example, uh, brand reputation that we create is all to create psychological acceptability. And often we forget it's equally important to have the product engineered right. <laughs> right, so, which is actually, I think, more difficult to do. More difficult to do, so it deals with reliance, uh, re reliability, performance, all of those risks that consumers have about the product. I mean, the drug industry has great efficacy, but there are so many side effects. Mm -hmm. You can design a great automobile, but it may be unsafe, for example. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, despite such a great, great industry, we created General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. It was Toyota who added the reliability. 
And I tell you, this is fascinating. About five years ago, I went to National Serengeti Park, you know, in uh, Eastern uh, Africa, and all the automobiles or the vans, safari vans, were all Toyota and not Land Rover. And I asked the drivers, well, you know, you're bonding with them for three days. You're, you're stuck with them. And in many ways, you start talking. And they said, this Toyota is more reliable. It never fails. Mm-hmm. And when an elephant is charging, I don't want a car to stall on me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, interesting. So, 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 so what we are finding is that if one can therefore balance the two properly, if you are strong left-handed or left brain, you've got to balance with the right hand or right brain. Same thing. We have overemphasized dollars we are spending, which is why marketing is so ineffective toward psychological acceptability and not enough toward functional acceptability. Interesting. Also, you talk about some of the key principles of acceptability. Um, could you explain why an offering should be innovative, but not too radical? There have right. been a number of products that were just uh, right. almost a quantum leap forward and, and failed. Yeah. In fact, in terms of new products, there's a very nice sort of a four or five point checklist. The product should be such that it fits into the existing consumption ecosystem. Unfortunately, many product designers and marketers do not think about what happens to the product after the consumer brings the product at home. Give you one quick example. You can make a very large package of cereals, but they don't fit into the cupboards at home. So now you have this oversized cereal, great value. You buy from Costco, you can buy from you know, Sam's Club, where they sell you more bulk quantity, but it doesn't fit. So what do you do? Often families put their under the sink where there are hazardous chemicals. Now here comes a young child Saturday morning, wakes up early, wants to watch cartoons, and picks up now not only cereal, but chemical stuff. Mm. See, we don't downstream enough, which is why this user as a focus is very important, which is where acceptability comes in properly. Mm-hmm. So design is the same thing. There has to be an interface between the human and, and, and then the machine, for example. One can think about appliances. I, I've done so much of a uh, consulting role in this area, and one of my favorite consulting companies always has been Whirlpool in appliances, brilliant company. And we were doing projects that when we have an aging in the population, can they actually open the refrigerator. They don't have the strength in their hand or the stove, you know, anything, because it was designed for young families. Mm. So Mm. how do you redesign? If you have a stove, the contrast is not sharp enough for the aging eyes. Most of them have macular degeneration of some sort. So when the society ages, are you able to redesign the appliance? But that's all about users. And I'll make one point, which is very key. I like to work with the R&D organizations of companies, whether it's Bell Labs or whether, in fact, it is Texas Instrument Labs or whether it's General Motors Tech Center or Pillsbury and General Mills, what they call kitchen people. Because in product design, you take a user perspective, not a buyer perspective. In marketing, we take a buyer perspective, and that that there's a disconnect within the organization. So, and by the way, the most important function today, from an acceptability viewpoint, is no longer engineering in any product, but it is design. Mm. 
chief yes. design officer is more important today. And he always thinks about how the human interface works very well. What are the aesthetics, for example? How do you create emotions in the product? So you take an Apple product and it feels good. Well, that's great. And it's a good example. Uh, and I believe that Apple's now the most valuable company in the world. I yes. think they just surpassed a, a trillion dollars in yes. in value. One other thing about acceptability that surprised me, and I'd like you to explain, is that you you talk about how offerings, product offerings, they need to surpass customer expectation. Right. Uh, the, the that is almost a double-edged sword in some fashion. If we are customer centric, then it says. We must exceed customer expectations to create satisfaction. If we exceed enormously, you have this delight. You know, we use all those words. Mm -hmm. But then the problem with the market is that, unfortunately, customer has a huge diversity. You have the age diversity, gender diversity, income diversity, all the demographic diversities, if not lifestyle diversities. And therefore, you cannot satisfy everybody. So it's not in this book, but I have a separate paper, which I equally believe very strongly. It is a book's worth. One is to learn also managing customer expectations, mm. not just exceeding customer expectations. Mm. One is to therefore say, not everybody will be my customer. So how do you select your customers in so your product actually matches their expectations, which is a very important uh, aspect of marketing that one needs to study. And it seems that the, the customer expectation sometimes isn't even considered. Yes. And and customer expectations is a sort of a escalation point. Just you satisfied my customer expectations, my expectations rise now. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, you travel a lot. I used to travel a lot. And I would go to the hotel and a clean bed was enough at one time. But today, if I don't see two mints on my pillow, I'm unhappy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Because I'm getting more and more. So the more I demand, more they give me. It escalates all the time. And there comes a point where the economics just do not match those expectations. It's funny. Sometimes I, I think I've heard of it as the Amazon effect, where Amazon will do something <laughs> where they satisfy their customers in some way. And then everyone expects yeah. all the other companies to do that. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, seriously, I've met many of you and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful or will be because all the research indicates that big learners are big earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial. But there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. 
And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan, that's what I did, and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now, back to the show. Let's move on to affordability. Uh, Can you talk about the difference between a a customer's willingness to pay versus their ability Yes. To pay. <laughs> very yeah. important this distinction. Is, yes, correct. Absolutely. And it is very true in economics. In microeconomics, they teach you ability to pay versus willingness to pay. We never took that framework and put it together as we have done in the 4A's book. There are two dimensions. And again, like anything we talked about in acceptability, marketers focus more on psychological acceptability through branding, positioning, clever slogans, as opposed to functional here. Marketers focus on willingness to pay, and they do not focus about the affordability. So it makes no sense to say, go in debt if necessary, through credit card, however you do it, and we raise this huge debt issue, ultimately at a macro level, society reacts against that. So marketing is inviting problems long term. As I said, marketing is a great uh, you know, uh, medicine. Its efficacy is there, but it has huge side effects on society. <laughs> Yes. Dr. Kotler talks about that as well. Right. So one has to take the ability to pay in, 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 and then how do you increase? And there are mechanisms to increase the ability to pay. We invented mortgage system for home ownership. Before that, when you had to have all the money saved, today we do financing the, you know, automobile, for example. And after the Great Recession now, Bankers have become a little more careful. I mean, there are so many ways that we have not thought about, which is what marketing should be doing, but they focus so much on willingness to pay. So, for example, I mean, I have, a, I have a, you know, one of the key things we do often is to create three levels of affordability, good, better, and best. Mm-hmm. Classic Sears model. Sears invented as a retailer with their own private brands. 
And of course, Marriott has done a great job of good, better, and best. You can have Marriott Suites at the top level, and they used to also own Ritz-Carlton at one time, as you know, uh, which is a very interesting area. And then they, they have, the, of course, the Marriott, you know, the courtyard they created for the value proposition. They are one level below that one. So all the hospitality industries have learned good, better, best. Mm-hmm. So one can do that thing. And automobile guys to do this. Finally, you say, I can make three different types or varieties at different levels of affordability to have the ability to pay match there. I can do a subscription model. Today, everything is subscription, especially in IT services, B2B enterprises. Nobody can afford multi-million dollar capital investment. Mm-hmm. So today, everybody goes toward subscription model, as it is called primarily, you know, cloud computing, for example, is an operating expense. So one can think very obvious things, and salespeople have to learn, marketing people have to learn how to increase the ability to pay of the customers. And you talk about how we're we're actually entering a golden age of affordability, just not just the subscription marketing, but uh, other, yes. other different approaches for people to be able to uh, pay for right. the... The same uh, product. So uh, absolutely, I just want to add one thing. Compared to the mechanical age or electromechanical age, the digital technology is so different because there everything is fixed cost. There are only two components: software and chips. Where scale and speed matter. So you can now today offer a television set. Think about the latest television set, 55-inch screen I can offer at almost like $200 or $300. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So we have increased the affordability or what I call democratization of innovation. Today, even in India, bottom of the pyramid, below the poverty level, people have a cell phone. They can afford that. I can create used market and make ability to pay increase in the process. It's fascinating. All of these are stuff that we are learning by focusing on ability to pay. Yes. And I think that uh, for those executives who work for Jaguar, if there's a way for them to make uh, Jaguars more affordable for faculty members at Emory University in Atlanta, Absolutely. That would, Absolutely. they should move that up their uh, priority list. So the next one is accessibility. Um, right. And uh, talk about what you mean by accessibility, because I'm wondering if a lot of people might misunderstand what yeah. that means. In some sense, accessibility is similar to availability, but we added there are two dimensions. It says that when the buyer is ready to go to the market and buy, is the transaction convenient on the one hand? So convenience is one dimension. And is it at a place? Convenience is more time anchored in some fashion, but is it at a place where I can do it quickly? So for example, Many products that used to be in department stores went into grocery shops because grocery stores are very nearby. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have to go to a department store, which may be a regional shopping center, right? It's a hassle to reach there. Today, unfortunately, both are inconvenient. And therefore, today, people are just ordering from home online 24-7. So Mm -hmm. not only have you increased the convenience of doing business, procurement in this case, but also availability, I can do it any place, any time now. So technology is enabling more and more availability or point of presence primarily. Mm -hmm. How can you increase your points of presence, which is very key, and we haven't focused on that as much as we are focused on making it more convenient. 
Now, the last A is awareness, and that's what I'm sure marketers are going to be the most interested in because they're probably spending most of their time in this. But right. you, you talk about, uh, of the four areas, awareness is the area where there's the greatest opportunity for improvement. Right. That's surprising. Why, why do you say that? The reason is very simple. All marketers want to do is to spend the dollars talking about the brand <laughs> and how their brand is different from others. And in many, many industries, especially in services, but I would say even products, consumer has no product knowledge whatsoever. <clears throat> Take my own case. You know, I'm a professor, well-educated. I pride myself in teaching others. But when it comes to wealth management or financial management, I have no idea. I don't know what insurance is all about and how to buy them. So healthcare the same way. I don't know the doctor's language. So there's a huge void of product knowledge while they have huge brand knowledge. And once you have a brand knowledge or brand information, I can then distort it in the way I think it fits into my product knowledge, which means consumer now makes you misunderstand than what you want to do. So again, we are saying that like everything else, we have overemphasized brand knowledge, overemphasized brand attributes, compare with other competitors, differentiate ourselves, but you have not given enough product knowledge to the consumer. How can you educate the consumers, provide more information, guide them, and if you are a better company, obviously they will come to you. Right, and uh, you talk about how many marketing setbacks that you've studied have been blamed on failing to properly educate customers yes. about the product. But I want to push back just a bit and sure. say, isn't there a risk, though, uh, that that is a double-edged sword in that companies want to talk about their products too much anyway, rather than uh, how the product can help the customer? Right. And this is where there's a fundamental issue with competition. Is competition a zero-sum game, which is what we believe, whereas we as authors believe that through competition, one can make actually a positive sum game. You can grow the whole industry properly without collusion of any kind by as a leader of the industry, pioneer of the industry, you can lead changes which are good for the society, good for the consumer. It is not either or proposition. It's all saying doing well by doing good, which is very key, my view. And that is where marketing gets criticized. If, if you just watch any television network and you talk to the journalist, if you see any kind of a problem, they say it was a marketing problem. Nobody ever blames innovation, surprisingly. They all blame marketing. Right. And that is not and fair, particularly when it's a fair. bad product. <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, we, we it's very fascinating. So my view is that especially in emerging markets or newer markets, one needs to educate the consumers as, a, as an industry altogether, and a lead company should do it, not a trade association or the industry association. Especially in services today, in healthcare, for example, I think it's the hospital in the delivery side, pharmaceutical companies in the you know, pharma side, and of course, medical devices should talk about this properly. So product knowledge is absolutely in shortage. People, have, people are ignorant. They're technically incompetent even because technology is so sophisticated today. They just don't even know how to use it properly, let alone how to buy it. 
And as I said, the key issue we are uh, emphasizing in the book is that, please, please, there are three customers out there. User is a customer. Buyer is a customer. Pair is a customer. Don't just focus on the buying behavior or on the buyer. So one last question I'd like to ask is that in the book you, you talk about, and perhaps related to what we've been discussing, but now more than ever, a company's communications efforts needs to do more informing and less yes. persuading. Right. And, you know, right. for, for an ex-Madison Avenue ad guy like mm-hmm. me, right. you know, hey, it was all about persuasion. But it's, it's, right. I think it's very important that people understand that you need to do more informing now and less right. persuading. Why, why do you say that? Yes, because we have not understood the role of communication. When somebody advertises, I can perform four objectives. The biggest objective of most advertising in in mature markets, especially, is simply reminder function. It just reminds people to do things. Second biggest impact is reinforcement after the purchase, not persuasion. After the purchase, I want to be assured that I made the right decision. We call it cognitive dissonance. In the 60s, I did a lot of experiments in like what behavioral economic economists do today and showed that people do need to be reinforced that they made the right decision. In fact, after every decision, the consumer, you have two very uh, uh, identical product choices. You are in a dilemma. After the purchase of one product, consumers exaggerate the positive thing of the chosen alternative and suppress the negative thing of the chosen exaggerate the negative of the uh, you know their product or the brand they rejected and they exaggerate the positive it's a very predictable model that's human nature so consumers use advertisement for reinforcement and reminder not for persuasion mm. third reason where advertising works very well is surprisingly what we call precipitation i'm wanting to do it I want to do it, I have a good intent, but I'm just hesitant. So how can I push the consumer in a positive way because the consumer is ready, but he or she is not willing to pop the question as we call it in marriage, right? Mm-hmm. It's very similar, the kind of a thing. So, how, so advertising often performs precipitation function. Persuasion, surprisingly, is the least effective function based upon all the research done on print media by Starch. You might remember Daniel mm-hmm. Starch. Yeah. And he's a, I worked you know, on the data quite a lot. And of course, in print, uh, Ted Bates was an advertising agency, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or a, and they did a lot of research on television commercials. Same conclusion. People who read your magazine ads or people who watch the ads are already your loyal customers because they want to be reinforced, which is very fascinating. So in that regard, we are suggesting in the book that focusing on advertising in a different way as to what is the end purpose of advertisement, where persuasion may not be the ultimate outcome of the advertisement. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember once uh, when I worked at the agency that has the Ford account, right? Uh, J. Walter Thompson, the, yes. the number one, the number one uh, media target was Ford owners. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Dr. Sheth, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? The one thing is that customer is multidimensional. Getting the multidimensionality right, thinking about the customer not just as a buyer, but a user and a payer, and even a seeker of knowledge because people just want to know about the company and the products 
even though they may not be the buyers or the users of the product. So taking multidimensionality of a customer, multi-personality of a customer would be the key takeaway out of this book. Mm. What books have inspired your working career? Uh, it has been a series of books over time. Um, surprisingly, before I came to America, in India, I had two economics books that helped me a lot. One was Maynard Keynes, John Maynard Keynes' book, uh, where I studied the you know a propensity to consume and propensity to save. And uh, Alfred Marshall was a very great economist on consumer utility, consumer surplus. I remember those books. But really impact happened once I came to University of Pittsburgh as a student, and I immediately latched on to Maslow, Abraham Maslow, and his need hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I be, actually went into psychology because of that book. I thought it was brilliant mm. that consumers have needs, you know? Yes. It was very fascinating. So I began to really uh, get into that one. So my PhD is more into consumer psychology or behavioral sciences then in marketing, marketing was my applied field. So Abraham Maslow was my very key book Interesting. in terms of influence. Uh, I must tell you that no matter how I say, in the early days in our middle school level, obviously Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, as we call him, uh, writings about Mahatma Gandhi, not his autobiography, but biography was very influential because it told you that you have to have an inner conviction no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that gives you a solid base, foundation to do things right in the life. So that was very influential, but that was an individual, not a book. And later on, other books came into play, like Peter Drucker that I mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. That was very influential in my thinking. Uh, and this just goes on over time. Uh, I must tell you that more influential books to me have been books written for professional audiences, not just for the academic audiences. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, and your book, The Four A's of Marketing, even though you and your co-author, Professor Sisodia, are both academics, um, it was not an academic feeling (laughs) book. Uh, And and I hope you take that as a compliment. It was was clearly written for the audience that you were were trying to to help. Right. So are, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Um couple of books that come in my mind uh, are something to do with technology, more so than marketing and maybe its impact on marketing indirectly. Uh, clearly, books on blockchain. Mm-hmm. There's no one specific book that I can recommend. There is one popular book. Blockchain would be as transformative or more transformative uh, than internet, as I'm doing more research in that area. And I'm learning quite a lot about the side effects of this technology, digital technology, and books in that area are becoming more interesting to me. Um, I have shifted from marketing and consumer psychology to more and more macro policy level, and therefore the rise of China and India, the new triad power. I do a lot more research and a lot more thinking into the geopolitics of the nations. And the books in that area is what I'm reading now more and more. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if there's a. I'll have to keep a lookout for any uh, upcoming books about blockchain as it relates to marketing, because that would definitely be a, a topic that we haven't covered on this uh, right. podcast. So, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? 
Uh-huh. I do have a website. Mm-hmm. It's www.jackshef.com. All my publications are there. But I've done something, Douglas, that I did want to talk for at least uh, 30 seconds or 45 seconds. Over time, I have done so much work in so many diverse areas. has been a great learning experience, consulting more than 100 corporations, teaching in many places. So I began to finally put all of them on a whole series of video lectures, more toward like Netflix approach, 35, 40 minutes, and have created a whole Seth Leadership Academy. Oh. There are about 100 lectures, and they're about 45 minutes in length. Uh, for example, I have a eight, nine videos on customer centricity. I have about seven, eight videos on relationship marketing. I have about six, seven on uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, similarly, one about eight, nine on uh, leadership, because I'm very eclectic geopolitics, globalization, and of course, marketing. Within marketing, there are two separate areas. I think visiting Seth Leadership Academy would be very valuable to people. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to include a link to SethLeadershipAcademy.com uh, on your, the, your episode's uh, show notes uh, yes. at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And we'll also include a link to your uh, JagSheth dot com website also on uh, twitter dr sheth is uh jag sheth j-a-g-s-h-e-t-h and we'll include right. a link to that in your show notes and uh right. if you're on twitter and you're listening uh please thank dr sheth for being on the podcast i'm marketing book if you want to add me to the conversation and we'll also include in the show notes a link to your linkedin profile so that uh, people can, uh, folks right. can learn more about you and, and, and maybe even connect. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the show on your podcast player like uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player in your hand right now <laughs> and clicking on the show notes link. If you're driving, please keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the steering wheel. The name of the book is The Four A's of Marketing, Creating Value for Customer, Company, and Society. The authors are Jagdish Sheth and Rajenda Sisodia. Professor Sheth, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. I really enjoyed this. This was great. Fun. And that closes the book on episode 190 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. And please join us next time as we welcome Kristen Zhivago to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Roadmap to Revenue, How to Sell the Way Your Customers Want to Buy. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs>